Hi there, everyone. Uh, before I can go ahead and dive into this episode, there's just one thing I need to address first. I recently received a comment from the program's most avid listener about the excess duration of my apology and subsequent explanation uh, for the technical issues I've encountered in recording the first couple episodes. Now, um, what I didn't calculate is that my editor, Jeff, has uh, a God-level status when it comes to dealing with these things. Uh, when it comes to the software program logic, he is Odin. And uh, that has left my asinine and long-winded rambling entirely unwarranted. Uh, things turned out all said and done much better than I expected. Uh, when I record these introductions, it's shortly after... I do the discussion, and um, I'm not really too sure how things turned out. So the initial product is drastically inferior to what uh, you end up hearing because of Jeff's magical powers. Now, as to my introduction last time, I did warn you at the beginning of the first episode that uh, my boring and tedious demeanor may cause injury, or death. So, you were warned. But I will say, uh, for my own sake, to ensure that I don't find anthrax in my post office box, I will aim to improve all the same. My guest on this episode is Dr. Yanir Bariam. Yanir is a physicist and complexity scientist. He worked on the Ebola outbreaks in Africa through his policy advice to the National Security Council, the UN, and the WHO Global Outbreak Alert and Response Network. Also with Ebola, he did community efforts in Liberia that were instrumental in stopping the outbreaks there. He is the president of the New England Complex Systems Institute, and he is the founder of endcoronavirus.org, ECV which he founded a little over a year ago to contend with the present pandemic. That, that, that we actually do discuss in this episode. As well, we do a retrospective on the past year and uh, address mistakes made by governments and various people, uh, what could have been done differently, uh, and common misconceptions around the pandemic. And as well, too, uh, what things could look like as we're going to move forward. Uh, this is a very insightful episode, and Yanir is an extremely uh, lively and engaging speaker, as well as being a pivotal figure within the zero-COVID movement worldwide, and uh, possibly its most staunch advocate. And uh, this was a really great conversation, and I hope you get a lot out of it and uh, do enjoy it. Cheers. Okay, uh, Yanir. So let's go over what you were doing after your work with Ebola and up until right before the present pandemic. And what were your main concerns in that period of time as to what might occur and uh what were you worried about as far as not just specific diseases and uh, what they can do specifically, but what 
uh, the human response to it would be. So, um, so the main thing is that in January 24th, 25th, um, uh, Nassim Taleb, my collaborator, contacted me and told me that I better pay attention to what's going on in the outbreak in China. Because I had been working on totally different problem for for a few months, mostly. Um, after um, organizing, I mean, the outbreak effort on Ebola in West Africa, in, in, in the Congo, in the East Congo, was still going on at that time. Um, but... Um, uh, when we saw what was happening in China, it became clear that there was need for a general warning. And so Nassim and, uh, and uh, Taleb and Joe Norman and I wrote a piece that basically said, um, take this seriously, act quickly, preemptively, proactively, um, take a... Uh, uh, basically a, uh, a worst case scenario perspective because it's much better to do that than to um, face the uh, catastrophe that uh, would happen otherwise. Yeah, so, so the main thing is that um, in January, toward the end of January, like January 24th or 25th, Nassim Taleb contacted me and said, pay attention to what's going on in China because I was buried in other things that I was thinking about at the time and quickly put together a one-page statement about how there was a need for proactive action to assume that things would be worse than appeared, not having a, you know, kind of wishful thinking kind of perspective, which is a real bad approach in a pandemic because what you learn over time is often that it's worse than you think. And that's what happened, of course. Um, so we put that out, and it may have had some influence on the decision by the U.S. to put in some travel restrictions. But halfway measures don't work, and uh, we knew that at the time immediately. And, and, and the bottom line is there was about a month where we were watching that China had successfully controlled the outbreak. And um, the question was whether the West... Europe and the U.S. were going to allow the disease to get to 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 the to the domestic areas, and um, and that was really the question. And many people were saying, "Hey, you know, China did this, but we can't do it." But when South Korea took aggressive action, there seemed like there was a window of opportunity that people would do something, and it didn't happen. So at the end of February, the very end of February, I sent out a call for volunteers because at that moment, it was just obvious that um, the, the needed actions were going to be tremendous in order to overcome the outbreak. And, and that call for volunteers resulted in the creation of the end coronavirus system, which has enabled many thousands of people to contribute in various ways. Uh, to the outbreak response effort um, in many different dimensions. And the dynamics from that moment was watching um, 
sort of the outbreak grow and trying to see and react to what the response effort was. So, of course, the, the, the entry points into Europe, the first two places where the outbreak really became severe were in Italy and in uh, Iran. And uh, watching the outbreak grow there, the question was when and how would people react to it? And eventually there was reaction. There were lockdowns in Italy, in Iran, and then across Europe, and uh, then also in the United States, starting in California. And, and that reaction gave hope. I thought at the time that people had already understood what was going to happen, what needed to be done. Uh, but there were these confusions. So, you know, in the U.S., there was this model that was put out that said, well, you know, as soon as we lock down, then exactly what happened in China is going to happen in the U.S. And that's just not true. You know, there are a whole bunch of things that you have to do. And that confusion caused a tremendous amount. Uh, because if you don't do everything that you need to do in order to control the outbreak, it doesn't get controlled. Um, and in Italy, similarly, the outbreak, it took, they were in lockdown for four months and they never got down all the way to zero. In some parts of Italy, yes, but not all of the Italy. But at the same time, there were other countries that did a good job and Switzerland and other countries in Europe, the cases went down rapidly. They were down at a few cases per day. And so, so. In that interim period, the basic statement was, we've got to do everything. You don't do it halfway, go all out, trying to explain to people about whatever it was, the precautions, dealing with a mask issue, dealing with other things, but basically putting out a lot of guidelines to keep people safe, to have hospitals be able to deal with what they were dealing with, whether it was trying to figure out about better ventilation or better testing or whatever it was in order to advance the effort better ventilators, right, having capacity of ventilator. Um, but the point is that as the outbreak was going up, we were concerned about addressing the outbreak, but also about shifting to uh, stopping the outbreak. Once people shifted to lockdown, now we said, okay, so now we're on the right path. But there were these missing pieces. And the missing pieces included the, really the understanding that you had to go all out. People were doing things halfway. And then the thing that really uh, created, of course, the eventual problem is that once the cases went down, people opened up as if they were done. Um, yeah, you've seen that in France to a pretty extreme degree. They, they had uh, quite a rigorous... Uh, lockdown and enforcement of it right. and then uh, their their cases were really high and the calamity was immense uh, at end of March well yeah. into April and then when the cases got really really low and to the point where you know we could speculate but it wouldn't how much longer it would take for them to get to zero probably not a whole lot um, they just said well that that that's it we, we got it down and then they've had you know subsequent uh, outbreaks. It's yeah. really surprising. Yeah, this business about opening up when you have very few cases and not realizing that you have to finish it off, that you can't just leave these, you know, burning fire, right, or whatever analogy you use for it. I mean, somehow this business about 
the behavior of the disease did not get through to people. There are two different reasons for that that we can track back to in terms of people's belief about, but these are beliefs, right? The, 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 the point is that on a pragmatic basis, the cases were down, the end was in sight, whether it was a week or two weeks or, or, or whatever, the end was in sight and then people opened up. And that was uh, disastrous and, and, and clearly undermined all of the efforts to, to control the outbreak. Um, um, and at that moment, there was a lot of confusion right? because once you're down to low number of cases, it then takes a few weeks and they had partial restrictions in place. So it takes maybe even a couple of months before the cases grow to the point where, you know, it, it is obvious that it's catastrophic. Um, but that it was going to happen was, was clear. So, so that became sort of the, the, the conditions under which this, quote, second wave happened. And again, it's not a wave in a standard sense. It's just the fact that people stopped doing the restrictions that were needed in order to uh, keep the outbreak under control. So, um, so that's the next stage. Now, there are different countries that were in different places during this time, right? So we were dealing with what was going on in Argentina or what was going on in um, specific other countries. Um, and, you know, for example, Vermont in the U.S. was in a situation where it was basically at zero for a long time because they did travel controls and they did what was needed. But then the main thing that happened was Europe relaxed all restrictions on travel. And that was clearly going to lead to disaster. Um, and, and the U.S. allowed, you know, there's this business of transmission between locations, between communities, which if you control it in an outbreak, you can control the outbreak. Or they're doing this in India and they're controlling the outbreak. And people are saying, well, we don't understand why the outbreak is controlled in India. But if you impose travel restrictions, you can control an outbreak. Um, and if you don't, it just, just doesn't work. So, um, so um, the uh, Western world in not imposing travel restrictions basically undermined even the best efforts at controlling the outbreak. And we know that from specific data, right? So in Ireland, for example, the cases basically went away. In Israel, a very tiny number of cases. Um, but um, uh, if you look in detail at many countries, that was really the challenge. So um, then you get to the fall and the cases are starting to explode again. And some of it happened toward the end of the summer, right? So different places, again, it's, they're not really synchronized. So we end up having this second wave, if you want to call it that. And then the question is, when are people going to lock down again? When are they going to gain control? And, and catastrophically, many countries didn't control it even as, as well as they did in the first outbreak. And that meant that the number of cases on a per capita basis, and the geographical spread of the outbreak became very pervasive. 
So it went to all of the small communities across the United States, um, leading to huge loss of life and huge um, uh, impact on the communities. And, and then it became clear, you know, this is where you, you know, basically you're saying, I'm not going to do anything, I'm not going to do anything, I'm not going to do anything right. And, and then eventually the virus forces you to do something right. So, so in France, they, they had said, no, red line, we're not going to do another lockdown. Uh, and eventually they did another lockdown. And the same thing across Europe, the same thing in the United States. And the question is when and how much do people care about what's going on, care about others. In the meantime, while this was going on, um, what was happening is that we were developing uh, team efforts in multiple countries in order to uh, shift the conversation, which was resistant to locking down, resistant to taking precautions, believing in the ability to just weather the um, outbreak somehow in some magical thinking that it wouldn't become worse and worse. Um, I think a lot of it really boils down to people believing that some form of herd immunity idea would eventually happen and, and relieve people of the need to take action. Just wishful uh, thinking and hoping that Sort of, sort of like with the, the with the, the vaccines presently, it's it's miraculous how uh, fast they came up with one, and um, and there, there's a, there's great prospects with the vaccine. But ever since what would that have been November when it was announced that there was a vaccine, it just seemed like a lot of people just you know threw in their chips, just like well the vaccine's here. And, That's right. And, but I think a lot of it has to do with this basic passivity. It's a passivity that originates in, you know, let's call it exceptionalism. People think, well, we're we're good enough. We're kind of, we're, we're, we're great. So we don't have to do anything extraordinary in order to deal with this outbreak. Or it's, or it's a, we can't, right? You know, they could do it. We can't do it. Or it's a, or it's impossible. Fatalism. The fatalism, the impossible. And, and by the way, this was addressed in the original paper that I wrote with um, Nassim Taleb and Joe Norman. We just said at the end, he says, there are two misconceptions. One is that it, it, it's going to be okay, and the other one is that we can't do anything about it. And both of them are terrible, right? Because one is, is wishful thinking about the outcome, and the other one is uh, the fatalism or the, the can't-do attitude. And the can't-do attitude has been the most surprising thing in terms of the Western world because we think about our society as being a very capable, adaptive um, entity that will respond to challenges and, 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 and win in the face of challenges. And instead, we have this amazing sort of reverse exceptionalism, like we're special, but the way we're special is that we can't do anything. You know, we're special, and the meaning of special in this context is that we have these principles that we won't bend, so we'll never be able to do X. Uh, we can't lock down. Oh, yes, we locked down. We can't do travel restrictions. Oh, so we did travel restrictions. We can't wear masks. Oh, I guess we can wear masks. Um, so we've done all of the things that we've said that we can't do, 
But the thing that we really can't do is get our act together in terms of coordinated, intentional, planned efforts. Really thinking about it recently, it's like, you know, I have, there are these models of how organisms behave. And you have plants, right, trees and bushes and stuff like that. And it, it doesn't anticipate anything. If, if you hit it, it takes the hit, and, and that's how it behaves. And you have animals that watch you, right? They can watch what's going on. And they anticipate, avoid, act proactively in order to address. And so what's happened is that we have China and New Zealand and Australia and Taiwan and, and, and so on. And, and even Atlantic Canada, right, in terms of, you know, location geographically that have been, that acted proactively. They acted like an animal in the context of this outbreak. And we have the rest of the Western world that's sitting there like a plant. I can't do anything. I'm just, you know, so you take the hit. Oh, and, and if you want a funny thing, right, it's like this. What is the knight in, um, in this British comedy series that, where the knight gets all of his pieces? Uh, you know, oh, cut. from Monty Python. Monty Python, right? It's just a flesh wound, right? It's yeah. just a flesh wound. So, so we have this catastrophic harm that's happening. And this intellectual self-justification that basically says, I can't do anything. Um, and uh, it's a self-fulfilling prophecy, of course. So, so again, going back to what I was saying, through the summer and into the fall, and then progressively until now, what we've been doing is building um, uh, within country and then internationally based and and and... Uh, teams that are proactively uh, identifying steps that need to be taken in order to take this other path, the path to elimination, the path to getting out, the exit strategy from the pandemic. And, and eventually the narrative is that a mistake was made at the beginning, which is the mistake that we pointed to right at the beginning of the outbreak, saying that um, don't be passive. Don't accept that this will be okay. Now, one of the key uh, stories across this whole thing has been disinformation, which really is not just um, mistakes, right? There are people who are making mistakes. It's common, understandable. You know, there there is a, a dialogue. Uh, people don't always understand things, and so they say things that are not right. But there's also intentional disinformation, which is coming from uh, parties, multiple, who either have agendas uh, or are specifically trying to disrupt society, which there are such people. Um, and, um, and, and what we end up having is the, the need to speak above the cacophony of voices uh, that is taking place. And... Um, and the experience of what has happened is that we've been able to build uh, a voice um, that has um, progressively grown globally. Of course, a major reason for that success is that the virus is teaching us at every turn what the reality is about. And what we've been saying is exactly what happens, right? If we say that, you know, the virus is going to grow, 
because we haven't controlled it in the summer, the virus grew because we didn't control it in the summer. And there were a lot of people, including, you know, the snake oil salesmen or whatever, people who, uh, you know, sell shoe, shoe uh, polish under normal circumstances um, that are trying to gain attention in order to sell their uh, personalities or their, you know, whatever, um, claiming that, no, the disease is not going to grow. But that also includes some prominent scientists who are just um, mis- um, either, again, misinformed, don't understand what's going on, or are influenced by those who have agendas. It's always hard to tell the difference between um, uh, ignorance and malfeasance uh, in the context of a crisis. Um, in any case, um, the, what ended up happening, of course, is that what they said wasn't true. We had an outbreak. We had a lot of suffering. Huge numbers of people went to hospitals. And we also learned about long COVID, the long-term consequences of diseases. And again, when you have a disease you don't know about, we said this at the beginning, what you learn over time is often worse than you knew at the beginning. And that's been true. Um, but again, on the positive side, we've built up teams uh, teams grew um, in Ireland, in Israel, in Argentina, in Germany um, um, uh, through the fall. Uh, and that began to have a bigger voice and bigger influence. Uh, and this has uh, coalesced into uh, various um, uh, groups that are able to articulate the scientific with scientific clarity uh, and to influence uh, policy discussions and to help the public understand that there is a choice. Uh, there is this, uh, again, misinformed choice. People react to things using the frameworks that they have until they build other frameworks. And one of the things that everybody thinks is that government is kind of um, telling you things that you don't want to do or something like that, right? So you oppose what government tells you. So when government tells you to restrict your activities, the natural thing is to say, hey, um, I don't want to do what the government says. But and, and there's a lot that the government did which was not correct. So it justifies ignoring or, 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 or saying, I don't want to do what the government says. But the fact that the government has been ignorant, its main flaw has been not telling us enough restrictions. So rather than opposing the, the restrictions, one should oppose the relaxation of restrictions, which is one of the things that I've been saying since the relaxation of restrictions happened uh, last summer. So in any case, um, we now have, um, uh, as we did many months ago, we continue to have the opportunity to make a better choice. And ultimately, it's basically a binary choice. There's the choice of elimination, and there's the choice of living with a virus. And the living with a virus is not very much living. It's suffering with a virus. Whereas the 
better choice in terms of life style and everything else in terms of harm, including economic harm, which was one of the confusions early on, um, is to, to get out of this. So there's an exit. The exit takes about four to six weeks of hard work and then a little bit more to be careful. Um, let's say a couple of months in most places. Um, and then one can go back to normal life, the normal life that we've almost forgotten. That was a year over a year ago where we did, you know, went to visit friends and, and um, went to parties and uh, uh, concerts and sports events and restaurants and economy was open. And it's a, it's a tough world that we live in where we have to take uh, severe precautions. And there are a lot of people who have had long-term COVID and are still suffering from many consequences. Uh, and um, there are some people who have been unaffected by the disease itself. But, you know, about a month into the, into the outbreak, I said when I saw that people were allowing the disease to come to the West, I said, if we allow it to come to the West, it, it will affect everybody in the world. And I think, and surely, in one way or another, this virus has affected everyone in the world. Yes, in, indeed. Uh, even as you're mentioning, like uh, suffering and uh, uh, interruption of, of of quality of life, it was, you know, it still is shocking. It was it was surprising a year ago when uh, the the idea went around that there was a strict dichotomy between uh, contending with the virus and the markets as if they were completely removed. And really the best interest of the economy is to have it so it can, it can function on all ends. Like even take like a, a microeconomic issue of you know, a restaurant or something like that. If you have everything open, well, there's going to be X percentage of your clientele that are, are, aren't going to be patrons for their own self-interest or their, their, their own decision-making. Like if there's outbreaks and, and, and transmission, uh, things aren't just going to function properly. It's no. just not, uh, not a reality. And yeah, people well, have, yeah, people have this view. Go ahead. You can finish. Oh, no, I was just going to tie that in with what you were saying before about the snake oil salesman. What I seen, uh, um, come to life in March, last March, I guess it's, I can't believe it's been a year now. But um, March 2020 was I could see uh, people in, you know, whether it's a general public or the commentariat or even various academics, they had their preconceived notions of the world or, or their, their ideology, perhaps. And they were trying to bend what was happening in real time in reality to fit in with their preconceived notions and try to modify that. And I, I, from what I've seen happen in March over the course of you know a couple of weeks and days, is that's how a lot of that uh, accrued was that people, certain people, didn't want to face the reality and were trying to mold it in a certain way to fit their preconceived notions. Yeah. Yeah, and again, one of the ways they do that is they say, "Hey, we'll open up." thinking that it will go back that way to a pre-pandemic kind of scenario. You know, we're not making enough money. 
So let's open up. That means we'll open up, we'll get more money. Last year, this time, I was making X dollars. You know, if we open up, I'll make X dollars. But it doesn't work that way because there's a pandemic going on and it just doesn't happen. And instead, what we've seen is that, you know, there's a quarter of the world's population. A lot of that is China, but it includes Australia and New Zealand and Taiwan and so on and Thailand and Vietnam. I mean, they're, they are in uh, that world, the world where you go to sporting events and you have 10,000 people in the stadium or whatever it is, or in a concert, um, a rock concert or whatever other you happen to like to go to. Um, whereas the rest of the world is basically in a halfway lockdown um, with the economic and social and individual consequences of that being very, very severe. And to the extent that people ignore it, many people get harmed individually or their family or their friends. Um, and uh, the suffering uh, goes on. And that includes both individuals that choose not to protect themselves and also, of course, people that cannot protect themselves because they have to go to work, um, because they have to get food on the table. Um, but overall, the society is, uh, is causing a lot of self-harm. And there are, of course, some people who are um, acting, at least indifferently, the suffering that's going on around them, and that is a very terrible thing to see. Um, but the main thing is that we continue to have a choice, and so what we've been doing and what we are continuing to do is to is to point to this better option and to have people work together, because eventually the biggest thing that one has to realize is that while it is a choice, it is not an individual choice. Individuals can protect themselves to some extent, but there will always be risks. You know, at some point they'll get hurt, they have to go to the hospital, they have to do something this, something that, and they'll have to take some risks and they may get infected. And, and the only way they, they, they can do those precautions that protect themselves is by changing their lives dramatically uh, into a, basically a personal lockdown right, a personal quarantine. But the alternative is to work together. It can only, pandemics are, are at the community level. They're not at the individual level, and they're generally not at the national level. They're really at the community level. And so communities have to make a decision. And, and, and going back to this idea of sort of the West as a plant versus as an animal, it can, the Understanding that a community has to be able to galvanize a decision-making process to act, that's where we're falling down. It's, so we have to not just empower individuals, we have to empower communities. And that means communities, people have to get together and make choices that are shared choices. And, and making shared choices in a society that's focused on individual freedom it's not really about the standard freedom. It's not really about the, um, you know, the fact that I should wear a mask or I need to, you know, uh, be stay at home for a while because we have all kinds of restrictions that we follow. You know, you whether drive it's three hundred on the highway. Yeah. That's right. Whether it's traffic rules, whether it's 
financial rules, whether it's, you know, having to make do your taxes despite the fact that you hate to do your taxes. And, and of course, there are lots of restrictions that the society places on people that are part of how the society works. Um, and if the government did the right thing and stood up and said, you know, we need to do this and we're going to do this in order to get rid of the outbreak, it would happen. Most of people, in fact, most people are, have said in polls that they want to take strong action. But when the government doesn't, when it doesn't provide clarity, whether it's because of ignorance or whether it's because of influence by financial interests that are not understanding what's in their best interest, um, the alternative is for people to come together and make the decisions um, in the absence of government leadership. And that's hard. That's super hard. So that's what we're trying to do. Um, early on, uh, when uh, you discussed about um, how so many countries were almost there and then they, they backed out and then as well the travel restrictions, what do you think some of these... What, what do you think some people were thinking when they had such an aversion to travel restrictions or when they were so close to zero in, in many European countries and then just, just backed out? Because in you know, much of my country, in your country, like a lot of the states and provinces, you know, they, some did better than others, but some weren't even really close at any point. But much of Europe was, was really, really close besides uh, the yeah. Dutch and the Swedes. And then, so what were they thinking just pulling out so quick? And why would so many countries have such an aversion to something as simple as travel restriction? So I, I think that, um, so there, there are different ways to say it. One way to say it is that um, uh, there has been this mantra in the, epidemiological community that travel restrictions don't work. And the, the, the reason that they claim that they don't work has to do with underlying assumptions in their models. It's not a real thing, right? We know that travel restrictions work. We've seen them in action. What, what are those underlying assumptions? They assume that there's always leakage and that the leakage will result in an outbreak a few weeks later, if not now. Right. So if you make an assumption that there is a fixed flow of cases into an area, then, well, if you have travel restrictions it, with that fixed flow, then eventually the fixed flow gives rise to an outbreak, just like you would have had if you didn't have the travel restrictions. It'll just take a little longer. So that's a standard idea that has been um, uh, discussed. But again, that's an assumption, right? New Zealand and Australia have stopped the outbreak. They have uh, leakage, but they stopped the small outbreaks that happened, right? If you have, a, if you have the willingness to prevent outbreaks, and it, it ultimately has to do with the discreteness of the cases coming in and the ability to respond to the risks that happen. And also, the other part of it is that if you get down to zero and if other countries get down to zero, you don't have the people coming in. They become less and less. Right. If Europe went for zero and opened up safely, then most of the countries would not have any cases. And so then, you know, then you get rid of the cases in the other places. If you assume rationality on the part of the other countries, you have no problem of all of them getting to zero. Right. So so the, the point is the following, that 
there can be assumptions under which it won't work. They make it much more interesting from an epidemiological point of view, but much less interesting from a policy perspective. You're assuming failure. Um, so, so that's one of the reasons. And you can talk about other reasons which have to do with sort of economic incentives of particular organizations like airlines. But I think one of the reasons that, um, that it's been hard to think about travel is that within one generation, the generation of the people who are now in power, we went from a world that was essentially local, right? So after World War II, um, travel was still very limited. Automotive travel only became common within that those decades later. And airline travel became common even later. And the existence of travel opened up lots of opportunities, right? Because instead of, you know, you know, taking, you know, weeks or months to get someplace, you would you would get on a plane and you would be anywhere in the world within hours. And in Europe, you could get in a car and drive and be anywhere within hours, you know, cross several state lines. Uh, and compared to what it was like before, where people, you know, grew up and, and lived their lives and died within a particular uh, region of a country, not even the whole country, uh, it was transformative in terms of lifestyle. And so people value it tremendously. I think people feel that it's an important part of their lives that they can, you know, in the middle of the winter, get on a plane and go to the coast of Spain, or they can go skiing in, in the Alps. Um, and that becomes something that is uh, really uh, treasured. Um, and, and there are two responses to this. One is that it may be something that people value, but it shouldn't be valued in the same level as life and health of people. And it shouldn't even be valued as much as, you know, the economic well-being of a country, which is, you know, so, you know, some leisure travel you can give up in order to be able to have, you know, the basic economic activities that are taking place. Um, and, and, and there are differences, right? Because there are places that there is a large, you know, 10, 20% of the economy is tourism. So it's different than if you have a country where it's a small percentage of the, of the economy. Um, but, but there's something else which is structurally not understood. And that is that the idea of, of, of change, right? When, when people, when the outbreak started, people couldn't imagine that their world would change. They'd lived a certain way. They got to the point where, you know, they, they understood how life worked. And then to imagine that a disease would come in and change qualitatively the nature of what life was like was surely hard for people to understand. And so they rejected that idea out of hand. We can just go about our business because life can't change. But once the pandemic was present, and people believe that anything that you do is going to become permanent. So we're going to install travel restrictions. So we're going to be living that way forever. 
As soon as we have travel restrictions, that means I can't go anywhere for, for years and years and years. And that's the barrier, I think, that was the hardest barrier. It's the realization that you can do something for a short amount of time. Because people have, know about this, right? They say, you know, I can hold my breath for, for a minute, right? No problem. I can go without food for a few hours, and I'll get food later. You know, I, I'm not like a grazing cow that I have to eat all the time. Um, and, and I can go, you know, uh, I can do work. I can go to work and work hard, and then I'll get paid. Right. So you have these ideas that you can do something for a short amount of time that you don't want to do in order to later do something that you want to do. But understanding that if you adopt travel restrictions for a relatively short amount of time, maybe a few months, and then you can return to being able to go to the Spanish coast or to the Swiss Alps, somehow people had a hard time understanding that. Yeah, it's, it's rudimentary delay of gratification. That's right. Yeah. And yeah. as well, too, it's not like this isn't even foreign. This is a very recent thing. When, when the, when the uh, volcano went off in Iceland, so well, we experienced that. It's going to happen. There's these act of God, acts of God, if you will, that, that interrupt these things. And, uh, you know, it's not like there was a massive lobby to say, well, to hell with it. We need to keep the airlines going. We're going to drive through the cloud of volcanic smoke and, and just see what happens. Yeah, yeah there were part of them much less deaths if they flew through the cloud of smoke than if they did what there is. There was a small risk of, of, of getting um, engine failure or so on, planes dropping out of the sky. But, hey, we weren't going to take that risk, are we? No, exactly. Oh, that, that, that's right. Yeah, the... If they would have went through with that, like yeah, the the, the death and, and cost would have been you know minuscule compared to what we've had to endure now. At least from what we understand, we've somehow we've normalized catastrophe, and it's a terrible thing to do. And and going back to the earlier work and talking just a few minutes about the future, um, we have an opportunity to get out of this. But if we don't get out of this and we're living with it, it will degrade the life, it will degrade the economy. And, um, and it may also degrade our ability to respond to things in the future. And the future may and very likely will bring much more severe disease. And we're seeing that with the variants. Now, this disease has not stopped and it has, we have a tremendous risk from them getting worse. They have already gotten worse. And getting worse means more disease, more death, more disability. Um, and uh, the, the vaccines may and very likely will be evaded. That's what happens with the flu. And we've basically created, we've treated it like the flu. It will treat us like the flu, only 10 times worse. And it can get 100 times worse. Um, the, the variants are, are not only faster transmitting, which makes them more successful, but they are more deadly. And they are um, not, uh, uh, they're evading the natural immunity, so they're infecting people that were already infected. Uh, and by the way, those people already have damage, right? So I don't know exactly what we'll calculate in terms of the effect, but one would guess that we can treat them as people with pre-existing conditions, right? 
So all of the people who have previously been infected are people with pre-existing conditions relative to the new variants. And, um, and that means that they're under severe risk for having much more severe disease and death. Not to mention, or should mention, the long COVID. And the long COVID has now become clear that it's in children as well as adults. Not that that should be surprising. I mean, people are making the best, you know, wishful thinking assumptions. So the disease continues to be severe. It has very proven ability to get worse. It has proven ability to evade the vaccine strategy. And um, now the question is, how bad will it still get? And whether we'll continue to, to be passive uh, or whether we'll now take the proactive measures. And if this pandemic is the way it is, then what about the next one? And if people continue to say, hey, you know, I can't do anything to stop this or, um, you know, or be fatalistic, you know, it, um, or, um, or wishful thinking, you know, it'll be the next one that will kill everyone off, if not this one. Yeah, with well, it's it's inevitable. Like it could be tomorrow. It could be in a century when the next pandemic's going to happen. But do you think uh, there's going to be anything really learned from this that that's going to stick? Like just with the costs. Like if if it would have been taken into stronger consideration in January and February of of 2020, the the cost would have been marginal compared to the cost. And uh, what could be done to start teaching people about? Uh, the matter of this being a scalable problem because I, I even now people still aren't looking at it like that like t- for instance um, a little bit after the the height of the concerns about Ebola in, in 2014 I think it was around 2015 or 2016 uh, Taleb did uh, a bunch of talks and he shared this photo of, of people that were uh, were people were using to to mock those concerned about Ebola, and so it, the, the the graphic had um, you know a, a fat person in a, a USA shirt, and they were smoking and drinking and eating a cheeseburger, and then they were worried about Ebola, and, uh, and then Taleb made sure to make the difference between you know static issues and scalable issues, and the fa- and I think he said something along the lines of like if he went to Mars for a few years and came back and her- and heard that a billion people died from something. Is it going to be from diabetes, uh, heart disease, or cancer? Or is it going to be from Ebola? And with uh, the coronavirus, we did see that as an issue of where, you know, it's just so uh, blatant of of just this scalable issue where things will be, you know, minor, and then they'll just go to Mars uh, in a a few days. Like with, with B117, we've seen that happen in in uh, Ireland, Newfoundland, and Britain, where it just shoots through the roof in in, in no time. Um, so, what can be done to make it stick in people's mind in the future for the remainder of this p- pandemic, but more so the future pandemics, to where you need to start looking at it like that? There is some indication that people are learning a bit in some parts of the world. It seems to be something that policymakers have a hard time grasping. Um, but there's a lot of other people who are getting it. 
Um, but I would say that, um, I mean, policymakers are find themselves under pressure and find themselves, uh, they think they're also disempowered. Um, but, but when Ebola happened, I was very angry with the fact that people were not taking it seriously. And indeed, it wasn't just because of the risk from Ebola, but because it showed that people wouldn't take it seriously if there was another challenge in the future. And that's one of the built-in, if you like, predictions that came true. That, it, you know, sort of ignoring the risk means that eventually you will pay the price. And what we can say is that, you know, we're doing our best to try to have people understand this. But I still don't know whether we will be successful in having that choice be made. And people ask me, they say, you say we can, you know, eliminate the virus. I don't think we can eliminate the virus. I say, well, I don't know whether we will. That's a choice. But I do know what the consequences are of that choice. And that's what I'm talking about. Yeah, there's no need to be prophetic or anything like that. Yeah. Well, it's it's a choice, right? There are people who, who, who choose to, to, to walk off a cliff, not even because they're suicidal, but because they are making bad choices. Um, uh, we have to do our best, at least that's what we're doing, to try to give them a better choice. Awesome. Well, let's leave that there. Thanks a lot, Yanir. Good to talk with you. Absolutely. Thanks for listening to this episode. The music you hear on this show is from the Jeff Lapp Trio out of Montreal. Find them at jefflapp.com. Shout out to Tara for doing the graphics for COVID on air. A huge thanks to my editor Jeff at Bean Co. Studios in Regina, Saskatchewan. Please visit ncoronavirus.org for more information on ECV. Click on Join Us. Through that, you can volunteer with ECV. And you can subscribe to our newsletter, which is full of great information shot straight to your inbox from our delightful newsletter editor, Tracy. Also, please check out the blog at ECV. And hats off to Scott, our impeccable blog editor. You can find ECV on Facebook and Instagram and on Twitter at ncovid19. You can find me on Twitter at Mr. Farden. It's at M-R-F-A-R-D-E-N. Until next time.